0: I want to tell you a story about Robert Cornwall. Robert Cornwall was a priest in Salem, Oregon, in the States. His brother, Judson Cornwall, very well-known Pentecostal preacher. And Robert Cornwall basically decided that he wanted to give some time volunteering at a local hospital. So he rocks up to the hospital and basically says to the warden of the hospital, Look, I'm a priest in the, in the town. I'd love just to give some of my time to serve in whatever way you need help. However, I can be of service to you. And the warden basically had to think about it and said, well, I can't think of anything particularly that comes to mind, but there is this one job that no one else really wants to do, so maybe you could do that. So said to Robert Cornwall, why don't you follow me? Took him down a corridor and then along another corridor, and they come to a room, it's called room 37. Now, this room has locks all the way down the side of the door, and the warden just starts undoing all the locks. Robert was thinking, oh my gosh, what's about to happen? Now inside room 37 were 37 psychotic individuals that were mentally incapacitated. This is a story back from the 70s. The hospital didn't know what to do with these individuals. So basically put them in a padded cell, um, highly sedated them and just left them there and every so often would check in on them. Um, and on this occasion, they basically said to Robert Cornwall, could you just spend an hour of your time with this crowd? So. Robert, Robert Cornwall steps into the room, the door closes behind him and he can hear the warden just doing all the locks back up and inside this room it was a scene of devastation like people unable to engage with one another, let alone with Robert Cornwall. There was excrement on the floor, puddles of urine, and Robert Cornwall didn't know what to do. He was like, how do I engage with these people that aren't capable of of engaging with me? So he found a place on the floor where there wasn't any excrement, no urine there, and he sat down and he said, God, I've got an hour, like what do I do? And he felt God say to him, why don't you just sing over the 37 individuals in the room? So it's like, well, I can probably do that. So he starts singing. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Okay, I've got a bit more time. Yes. <laughs> he spent a full hour singing that one refrain the end of the hour, he hears the warden come and the door being unlocked. And the warden says, thanks so much. That's been great help. Um, anyway, next week, Robert Cornwall turned up again, said to the warden, I'll do anything. Any jobs? He's like, yeah, there is this actually, there's this one job no one really wants to do. Follow me. Room thirty seventy yeah, eight guessed it right. Um, and the same routine, steps into the room, finds a place on the floor. God, what do you want me to do? And just senses the father say, I tell you what, why don't you sing? over them. It's like, fine. Yes, Jesus loves me for a full hour. Week three, into the same room, start singing. And then something happens. This larger lady begins to walk towards him. And he's feeling fairly intimidated. Am I about to be attacked? Like, does anyone know I'm in here? Oh, gosh. And she moves towards him and then sits down next to him. Joins in the singing. Yes, Jesus loves me. Week by week, people start moving to the center of this room to join in the singing, right? After six months, every single one of the 37 were out of room 37 and on self-help wards. At the end of the year, 36 of the 37 had been discharged from the hospital and many were worshiping in his church. That's a remarkable story. There are easier ways to grow a church. Let me just name that. There are easier ways to grow a church. But the incredible thing about the story is the transformative power of love. The 37 individuals weren't engaging with an intellectual idea. They were encountering experiencing the love of the father and when head knowledge becomes heart knowledge it transforms your life so the question we should be asking is how does head knowledge become heart knowledge when it comes to the love of the father and the answer is when that love is communicated with passion I can say to my wife, B, I love you, and I can say it again and again, I love you, I love you, but those words need to take on flesh. They need to be communicated in action, and more than that, with passion. Now, as we regularly say here at KXC, the word passion, the Latin root, is the verb passio, meaning to suffer. When you communicate love by making sacrifices to enable someone else to flourish, they don't just encounter an idea, they experience that love in the core of their being, right? To truly love with passion means to love with sacrifice, a love that involves suffering. And in the encounters of Jesus we read of in the Gospels, he's constantly embracing suffering to communicate his love. You think of the woman at the well, a Samaritan, an outcast, he takes the side of the outcast, commits essentially reputational suicide. His reputation takes a massive hit, but in that suffering, he communicates love that transforms her life. The lady caught in the act of adultery, dragged before the Jewish crowd. Jesus takes the side of the outcast. He takes a reputational hit and in the suffering, she encounters love and that love transforms her life. Think of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus come down from the tree. I'm going to take the side of the outcast, the tax collector. I'm going to take a reputational hit and in that suffering, I'm going to communicate love and that love has the power to transform Lives. You see it again and again and again. And in the Gospels, it keeps building. It keeps building. Reputational hit after hit after hit until you get to the cross. And there's a reason we call Easter week Passion Week. We celebrate the sufferings of Jesus for us. And in celebrating the sufferings of Jesus, we're reminded that he suffered because he loved us that much how much does God love you this is why the cross is the symbol of our faith when we look at the cross we're like he's passionate about us he would suffer that much that we might not just intellectually understand but encounter in the core of our being that we are loved and when that goes in it transforms your life if you read the apostle John he keeps riffing on this idea in his letters this is love not that we love God but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice of our sins. 1 John three sixteen. this is how we know what love is. Christ died for us. Jesus himself said, for God so loved the world that he gave his son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. When, when you contemplate the cross, Right? Not just trying to intellectually get your head around an idea, but when you look at the passion, the sufferings of Jesus, head knowledge becomes heart knowledge, it begins to transform your life. And the best known of all of Jesus' stories is the story of the prodigal son that many of us have heard. You've probably heard someone preach about it on multiple occasions. It's the story of a father willing to suffer to communicate love to restore a son. So essentially, the the son says to his dad, dad, when you die, this is a paraphrase obviously, I know what I wanna do with the money. The problem is I wanna do it now. Like I consider you dead to me. I'd rather the money now because I want to go and spend it. And this father says, well, I'm not going to stand in your way. If you want to take your inheritance early, it's bringing huge shame on me, your father, and on the family and the community. But if you really want your inheritance early, you can take it. And the son says, yeah, I do. I do. I count you dead to me. I want to take the money. I want to run. And he takes the money, goes off to far off land. He spends the money recklessly, the equivalent of sex, drugs, rock and roll. Undoubtedly had a great time for a window and then finds himself rock bottom. He's in a far off land. A famine hits that land. He has to find some kind of work. He ends up working on a a farm. He's so hungry that he's looking after pigs. But there's a moment where he buries his head in the pig trough because he's that hungry. Like, that's rock bottom, right? When you bury your head in a pig trough, that's rock bottom. And that's the moment he has this idea, maybe I should just go back to dad's place. I could never go back as a son because I brought shame on the family, on my father, but my dad's a father of incredible grace. Maybe he'd welcome me back as a hired servant. And maybe if I'm there for long enough, I can basically get a bit of a wage. And maybe I can buy my way back to the table. I can pay back the inheritance and earn my place at the table. That's religion, by the way, isn't it? This idea that through human endeavor and striving, you can earn the identity that God wants to give you freely by grace. So he comes up with this idea. He starts walking home. He's rehearsing the speech Dad, I've sinned against heaven, I've sinned against earth. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but could I be like one of your hired servants? At least have a bit of income so I can get by and maybe earn my way back to the table. And the father doesn't even listen to the speech nonsense he basically throws his arm around his boy kisses him on the cheek puts a cloak around and that's a symbol of sonship a ring on his finger that's another symbol of sonship and celebrates my boy who was dead he's alive again he was lost he's now found it's time to party now it's a great story right It's a really good story. It operates at a number of levels. Level one, it's just a beautiful story of reconciliation. But there's a deeper level where this story is deeply emotive, incredibly moving. Now, to understand this deeper level of the story, I want to invite you to embrace the mindset of a first century Jew in the crowd, listening to Jesus tell the story. Now, to enter that mindset, you need to know three things. Ready? Number one that Israel throughout the Old Testament has a title and the title is God's son. So if you remember the Exodus story, Moses is sent to Pharaoh to say to Pharaoh, this is what God says, Israel is my firstborn son, let my son go. Right, from that point on in the narrative, Israel takes on the identity of the son of God. But if you know the story of the Old Testament, Israel turns its back on Yahweh God, begins to worship the gods of the surrounding nations, and ends up in a far-off land in Babylon. Now, by the time you get to the first century, the time of Jesus, they've returned from Babylon, but they're still in a state of semi-exile. They're not free to be the people they were created by God to be. They're being ruled over by an oppressive Roman regime and occupation. And the cry of their hearts is, we want to be reconciled to our father, because when we're reconciled to our father, that's when the blessings that flow from God fall on us and we can be fully alive. In other words, when Jesus tells a story about a son who rejected the dad and ended up in a far-off land in exile and is desperately trying to come home, everyone in the crowd knew that this Jesus guy is a rabbi, he's a prophet, and he's beginning to tap into our story. We're the lost son, and we're desperate to get home. And maybe this prophet is going to give us some clues as to how we can get home the first thing you need to know. Here's the second thing you need to know. There was a ceremony in the Middle East in the first century known as the Kezazar ceremony. It went something like this. If a son rejected the father in the way that's happening in this story, if that son ever tried to come home after he'd caused so much shame on the family and the community, if he ever tried to come home, the people of the village would line up on the threshold of the village. They would take a clay pot and they would smash it on the floor in front of this returning son, which was a symbolic way of saying you see this kind of clay pot. It's in hundreds of pieces. It's irredeemable that's basically our relationship with you. It is broken beyond repair. The word kezazar literally means to cut off. It was a way of cutting off the son from the community. There is no way back for you. You shamed your father. We're humiliating you. You are not welcome back, right? Side point for the nerds in the room, the language nerds, to ostracize. Um, The word ostracized, to cut off, comes from the Greek word ostracon, which means broken pottery. Right, So it probably comes from this idea of the Kezazar ceremony. So Jesus is telling this story, and those in the crowd are listening, thinking Jesus is telling us our story. We're the son trying to get home to the father, and everyone knows about the Kezazar ceremony thinking, Oh my goodness, is Jesus about to tell us that we rejected the father And the Father's about to perform a Kezazar ceremony on us. And there will be no way back for us to his presence. We'll never be able to flourish in the way that we were created for. You could imagine the crowd leaning in like, no, is God going to perform a Kezazar? No, no. Here's the third thing you need to know. In the context of the first century, dignified Jewish men would never run. Right To run, you'd expose your bare legs. I'm doing it now, but these legs are great. Um, in that context, to expose your bare legs was seen as a shameful thing to do. So male slaves would run, because they had no dignity in that context. Boys would run. But a Jewish father would never, ever run, because you'd have to expose your legs and humiliate yourself. Right? So I want you to have those three things in mind. Israel well is the lost son trying to get home to the father. Everyone's waiting for the Kezazar ceremony. Thirdly, dignified Jewish fathers don't run. So if you put that together and you imagine yourself part of the crowd listening to Jesus tell the story, like where's the power and the punch in the story? And the power and the punch is everyone's waiting for the clay pot treatment. Everyone's listening like we know what's coming. This is going to be brutal. It's the clay pot treatment. This is the moment where the father gets revenge and pours out his wrath on his son. And the son is humiliated for what he did. But if you read Luke 15, as we read earlier, there was no clay pot treatment, was there? There was no Kezazar ceremony. The son wasn't humiliated. Instead, it's the father who humiliates himself in the place of the son. It's the father who picks up his robes, exposes his bare legs and starts running. So the question we should be asking is, why did the father have to run? Because if it was you, if it was me, even if we had it in our hearts to forgive, we would walk and we would just allow the son to grovel for a little bit, to sweat just a little bit. Like, just to put them through their paces, a moody walk. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He looks repentant. But he'll pay. Right? You're expecting that, but he doesn't do that. The reason he starts running is because he knows if the people of the village find the sun first, they're going to perform the Kezzar's ceremony. Such is the love for the father that it says he waits and watches in his fields. Now, we don't know whether this was happening every day for months, maybe even years, but he's still going through the routine, going to the edge of his land. Maybe my boy will come back one day. Maybe my boy will come back one day. And then one day he sees in the distance his son, disfigured, but recognizably his son, and he can't help himself. He's like, I've got to get there first. He hitches up his robes. He humiliates himself in public. And he's sprinting to his boy. Sprinting to his boy. And when he gets there, the son is flustered. A father I've sinned against heaven, I've sinned against earth. And the dad is like, no, 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 no. Throws his arms around his son. Kisses him on the cheek. Basically says, here's a cloak, a symbol of sonship. Here's the signet ring. Basically restoration to sonship. You're my boy and I love love you it's the most incredible moment in that moment picture yourself as the son i don't think he's wrestling with an intellectual idea i think my father loves me (laughs) right he's experiencing something at a very deep level because he sees passion in the eyes of his father a willingness to suffer to communicate love now the crowd would have been stunned by this listening to Jesus. And their big question would have been, what kind of father would ever operate like that? In our culture, on a shame culture, that, that makes no sense. We have no framework for a father who'd operate like that. And this is Jesus as a prophet, basically trying to say, your father. You rejected your father. You walked away from him. You ended up in a far off land in exile in Babylon. You're trying to get home, but you're lost, and you're hurting, and you are thirsty for love. And I'm here to tell you that God is on a mission. He's sprinting to find you, to communicate love that will transform your life. Now, did the crowd understand the story fully? Probably not. But there would have been a moment, months potentially later, when they see God in human flesh stripped naked and humiliated, hung on a tree with arms outstretched, communicating the embrace of the Father. And maybe at that point, they remember the words of Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have life fully. And as they see and hear the story of the sufferings of Jesus, Maybe they remember the story of the prodigal God, the reckless father who came running so that they could encounter love. That's why when Christians fix their eyes on Jesus and fix their eyes on the cross, the overwhelming experience is that I'm loved by the father. He's communicated his love with passion. And therefore, head knowledge can become heart knowledge and transform my life. So many Christians, and this is a tragedy, believe that God is loving and that he loves me, but they don't feel loved. The head knowledge hasn't become heart knowledge and they live without the experience of being beloved on this earth. That's a tragedy. Let me close with a few stories. When I was in my mid-twenties, I, I basically had a stint of counselling. I went through something that kind of turned my world inside out, upside down. And I went to see a counsellor just to help me process what I was going through. And a few weeks into counselling, I guess the counsellor sort of like knew he was beginning to sort of like prod and poke on, on the area of my deepest wound. And he gets to this one moment in the, in the counselling session where he says basically, Pete. Can I ask, do you have any memories of experiencing shame in your childhood? Now, I answer pretty rapidly. I said, no, not really. To which his response was, you didn't even think about the question. So just have a moment to think about it. Any memories of shame come to mind when you think about your childhood? So I do think about it. And then I have my second response, which is, no, not really which creates an open door for a counsellor, right? Oh, not really, so there was one or two. Um, He wasn't like that, he wasn't creepy. Um, He said, well, it sounds like there might be one or two, why don't you just share about those experiences? So I'm thinking, well, these don't really feel like memories of deep shame, but they have come to mind, so I might as well speak them out. So I basically say to my counsellor at the age of 11, I still used to wet my bed. And I expect to break into laughter because that sounds quite funny to me as a 25 year old, but instead of laughing, I start sobbing, sobbing. And all the memories come flooding back. I remember being 11 on a football tour with Wickham district. And we went on a tour to the north of the country to play cities like Leeds and Sheffield and other cities. And on tour, I wet my bed and I had to find the coach and say, "Ah, oh, this is embarrassing. I know, but I've wet my bed and he wasn't impressed. And that just deepened the sense of shame remember going to my best mate's house, a guy called Clive. remember one night, wet in the bed at Clive's house and thinking, great, I need to find Clive's dad. So I found the dad and said, look, I know this is embarrassing, but I've wet the bed. And he wasn't that impressed. And I began to experience shame, right? All of these experiences basically buried a lie within me that you're not worthy of love. That's what shame does. When you experience shame, it's like swallowing a lie that you're unworthy of love. And I basically tried to redeem myself over the coming decades of I'm going to prove to the world that I am worthy of love and I'm going to prove it in the world of academia and I'm going to prove it in the world of sport and I took that into ministry. I'm going to become effective in ministry because what I need is to taste success in a way that drives out this voice that says you're unworthy of love. And here I am in my mid-20s, exhausted, sobbing, because I'm still experiencing this internal voice, you're not worthy of love. How embarrassing that you wet the bed at the age of 11. Now, that was a moment for me of the love of the Father, finding my greatest wound and communicating with passion that he loved me. Now, I'm still on that journey, but that journey has and continues to transform my life, allowing the love of God into the place of greatest shame in my life. I preached a similar sermon to this at a church in the Southwest. At the end of the talk, this lady in her mid 80s came to me and said, Pete, can I have a quick chat with you? So I said, Great, let's have a chat. We go to the side of the room, we sit down, and she says, I want to tell you a story. When I was six years old, I went to a dinner party with mum and dad. And during the party, I don't know how it happened, I got lost from them. I couldn't find them in this house. I walked around, couldn't find them. I was in the living room. I needed the toilet. I didn't know where the toilet was. I was too frightened to ask anyone. couldn't find mum and dad. So in the middle of this floor, I froze and I wet myself and it was probably visible to those around me. This gentleman found me, took me by the hand to find mum and dad. But before he took me to mum and dad, he looked in my eyes and he said, you're a disgusting little girl. And then frog-marched me <clears throat> to my mum and dad. And she said, I'm in my mid-80s now. And for 80 years of my life, I've lived with an eternal voice that basically says, you're a disgusting little girl. And to hear the news of a father that would communicate love with passion, who would come running to find me and humiliate himself, to find me at my point of greatest shame and to speak a word of love over me, that feels too good to be true. Could you pray God speaks that word over me? So here I am, corner of the room, praying over this lady in her mid-80s, Lord, would you find her? And would the voice of your love drive out that horrible lie that she's a disgusting little girl? Would your love decimate that voice and start bringing life? Final story. I preached this sermon again. I've preached it a few times just to let you know. Some of you in the room is like, I know I've heard it at least four or five times. Too much, please. Yeah, too much. So I preached it in a church in the States. This couple came up to me at the end of the service and um, they weren't wanting prayer. I thought I was getting ready to pray for people. They wanted advice. So they basically said to, to me, Pete, nice to meet you. Um, we've got a little girl, similar age to maybe you were in the story that you told. She is wetting her bed and we're getting really frustrated with her and I think she knows that we're getting really frustrated with her and our tolerance levels are wearing thin and we feel really guilty about it and we don't know what to do. What would your advice be? And this was a moment for me where I recognized I'd become a bed wetting advice <laughs> and expert. I was like, I didn't grow up wanting to be a bedwetting expert, right? So I was like so I could reject this couple or I could enter in. I've never given advice on bedwetting before, but I, I stepped into that moment. It demanded it of me. And, and I said, do you know, this is what I would do. And I hadn't ever thought about this, so I'm, I'm, I'm riffing in this moment. And I offered them some advice that I can almost guarantee they did not follow through on, right? And I wouldn't have followed through on it either. But this is what I said. I said, next time she wets her bed, before you go in and change the sheets and communicate disappointment, and this is what I would do, because this is what I think God would do, I'd get into that wet bed, into the urine-stained sheets, I would hug your little girl and tell her you love her. Right? Even as it's coming out of my mouth, I'm like, that's horrible advice. <laughs> Pete, you would never do it. You would never do it. I don't need to do it. They needed to do it. <laughs> Because that is what I believe God would do. He'd find the place of your greatest shame. And this is the message of the incarnation, God taking on human flesh in the person of Jesus. He'd find the point of your greatest shame and he'd make his bed in that place. He'd make his home in that place and he'd speak a better word, you're loved. And he'd communicate it with passion. And with that kind of passion, head knowledge becomes heart knowledge And it transforms your life. Do you know what Martin Luther, the Reformation theologian, said of the followers of Jesus? He said, Christians aren't loved because they're attractive. He says they're attractive because they're loved. When a Christian fully understands their identity, they become so attractive. Because they live at the core of their being with this idea that head knowledge has become heart knowledge and now I am free and when you meet someone that knows at the core of their being that they are loved perfectly from a perfect heavenly father and they live with freedom that person is deeply deeply attractive This is the invitation, if we are to have encounters of grace this week focusing in on the love of the Father, the invitation, and we see it at the cross, the outstretched arms of Jesus, the invitation is is to come, not just to grab hold of an intellectual idea that you're loved by God, right? But to allow head knowledge to become heart knowledge so it can transform your life. Should we stand?